You're listening to the profession's greatest physical therapist, Their Past, Our Future podcast. We're your hosts, Ethan Mitchell and Joey Stewart, first-year physical therapy students at Angelo State University. This is the podcast that is made to inspire pre-PTs, SPTs, and current physical therapists to become the greatest versions of themselves, physically, mentally, academically, financially, and spiritually. Let's get into it. Welcome to another episode of the Their Past, Our Future podcast. We're so excited to have Yusra Iftikhar on. She's a graduate of Duke Doctor Physical Therapy Program, and she is heading out as the APTA Student Board, Student Assembly Board of Directors, Communications Director. I may have messed that up. <laughs> it is a mouthful, but that was great. Yes, Director of Communications. Okay. You got it. I tried my best. <laughs> Say that three times fast. <laughs> right. <laughs> He's a huge mental health, body positivity, and anti-racism advocate, and we're super excited to hear more about her story and all the advice she has for us today. So, Yusra, do you mind telling us a bit about your journey to PT school and how you became involved within the APTA? Yeah, of course. Well, thank you both so much for having me. This is a huge, huge honor. Um, I love the podcast. I love what y'all are doing. Um, But yeah, so my journey to PT school was a little bit non-traditional. I I did play sports growing up. I got hurt plenty. Um, But being from a Pakistani family where my dad's a physician, a lot of times it was like, take a Tylenol and get some rest. And that was our, uh, that was our version of PT. Um, And so I never saw PT growing up. I didn't know physical therapy was a thing. Um, When I was in college at UNC Chapel Hill, I was pre-med. And for me, being at UNC meant being a big basketball fan and like putting all my time kind of into going to basketball games. And I put a ton of time and effort into the classes that I really loved, which were my psychology and religious studies classes. Um, I majored in psych. I minored in religious studies. And I enjoyed science, but I don't think I enjoyed being pre-med. And I think that pressure of you know, being in a 300 person class and knowing that like that was a weed out class and everyone in that class is trying to get to medical school um, or, or something comparable was not great for me mentally. And my way of coping with that was to avoid it. Um, so I actually failed some exams um, my freshman year. I got like emails um, from my college being like, hey, you really need to like stay on top of this. I deleted those too. Um, was not a great student. But um, after that, so while I was at UNC, my roommate at Carolina, she um, she wanted to go to physical therapy school and she was in the athletic training program. And she was like, hey, I really think you should look into PT. I think your personality would fit well. And I was like, no, all you do is like not get paid and walk with old people. <laughs> so that tells you what I thought of PT at the time. Clearly I had no idea what I was talking about. Um, but I actually didn't start telling that story till this past year because I was so embarrassed and like felt so bad for saying that. Um, but I have grown <laughs> since then. So um, after Carolina, I went and did my master's in physiology at North Carolina State University. Um, sometimes people hear that and they are impressed. I tell them not to be because really I was using that time to uh, improve my science GPA. Um, I was still pre-med at the time and I was kind of buying myself time because I knew I didn't want to go to medical school, but I was too afraid to tell my parents. Um, so finally, halfway through my two-year master's program, I decided I would go shadow at a PT clinic, prove my roommate wrong, show her that I hated it. 
Uh, and day one, I loved it. <laughs> um, it was an outpatient wow. clinic. It was pivot physical therapy in Raleigh, North Carolina. And uh, the very first patient that came in, she had just jumped out of a plane. I think it was like for her 94th birthday or something like that. And she was super sassy. I was terrified of her. Yeah. Uh, and at the end, she gave me this huge hug and was like, oh, you are just going to be the best physical therapist ever. And I was like, well, I have to go to PT school now. <laughs> and so uh, it, it kept me coming back. I knew I wasn't supposed to have a favorite, but she became my favorite patient. I started putting all my free time during my master's into shadowing at that one clinic. Um, all the PTs there were like closer to my age. So it was really fun just to be there um, and hang out. I felt like I had three new kind of instant friends. And then a couple months in, the PT pulled me aside and said, hey, that one patient um, decided she doesn't want to come back anymore because she is feeling kind of hopeless. She feels depressed and she's dealing with a lot of like, why even keep going type feelings. Um, and that hit me really hard. And that was the first, but certainly not the last time I uh, teared up in a PT clinic. Um, and I knew that those things happen. Right. Um, and I knew that there was no way that uh, it was necessarily preventable. And yet I knew that like I had to go into this field and do everything in my power to prevent my patients from ever feeling that way and ever feeling that hopeless. And like, there was just nothing else kind of for them in life. Um, and so really I entered PT school with the hopes of, of tackling the mental health part of things. Um, I was never, I, I was pretty into fitness, but I was never into, um, like the principles around fitness so much as I was just working out, um, and being an athlete. And so, um, it was definitely a challenge being in PT school. I mean, I'm so psychology focused and I think that's really important. Um, but I also needed to do well in like my exercise phys class and stuff. And so, um, some of the like bio 101 tests that I had failed, like that idea like, came back to haunt me, um, my first year of PT school, but I got through it. Um, it, it was great. And I absolutely don't regret my decision at all. Well, we're so happy you made that decision as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. You've done a really awesome job. I know throughout like your student life becoming involved, like within the APTA. Can you talk a little bit more about how PT students who want to become more involved in the profession can get involved within the APTA? Totally. So um, with the APTA, I, so I, I'll just tell the truth on this podcast. I did not want to be involved with APTA as a first year. Um, I had gone to some conferences and not had a good time. Um, I felt like student assembly board of directors was kind of exclusive. Um, and I felt like APTA was going to be clicky and none of that was actually true. It was just my perception of things. Um, because I came to find out later that it ended up being one of the best decisions to get involved. Uh, but I would say the first piece of advice for anyone who is like maybe thinking about getting involved in APTA, whether it's at like the local state chapter level or the national level is that, um, you know, just like, if you are at all hesitant, say yes, and at least see what's out there for you. And there's so many different ways to be involved. So just, if you don't love one form of involvement, there's always something else that you can be doing. Um, and so one, I I would say the way that I probably first got involved was I just started forming relationships with my professors at Duke. Um, so I would talk to them all the time. I knew that I was interested in leadership. Um, I just didn't know in what capacity. So I started leading some clubs at Duke. Um, and then 
what was really kind of a blessing was a lot of Duke professors are very involved in the APTA at the state and national levels. And so that certainly helps to have people there who are already talking about their journeys. Um, and you can kind of see them succeeding in those roles and you think, huh, I wonder if that's for me. Um, and so I think my first form of official involvement was I uh, was chosen as the director of communications for the North Carolina's uh, student special interest group or the student SIG. Um, and I thought that because I was on social media all the time that it would be an easy role and that I would love being director of communications. I did not love that part of it. I almost never did my job in terms of like the social media part of things. But what I really loved was um, the North Carolina student SIG already had a blog and I was uh, getting really involved in my own blogging journey. And so I got to revamp and redesign, redesign the North Carolina blog. And then I got to write for that blog. And so I was also the chair of what they called like the engagement committee. It was basically the blog committee um, because I was responsible for asking students around the state um, and new grads to write blog posts for the blog. Um, and then, so I did that with the board of the North Carolina student SIG as, as blog director, um, I was responsible for working directly with the secretary of the big board, um, meaning like the North Carolina level board. Um, so that was people who were already like licensed therapists uh, or like even later on in their career um, who had like moved into academia and research. And so working with him, he also happened to be a Duke clinician. So that was really cool because then it gave me lots of different um, connections and he treated patients with chronic pain and treated in ortho, which is my dream setting. Um, and so everything kind of snowballed from there. So I got really in involved at the North Carolina level because of him. I really liked him. He was a great mentor. Um, I went to the North Carolina conference and met some people there who are now like my mentors for life. Um, that same guy wrote my last minute letter of recommendation for a residency that I'm applying to last week. Um, and so I would say that truthfully like just showing up is what helped me to get involved because people really like to see that students are are interested and you don't have to be involved you just have to care enough to show up um and I think right now with things being virtual, that's a really great opportunity to do that because I know that cost is a big barrier to showing up. And I'm absolutely sensitive to the ways in which, you know, access is not always easy um, to these things. And so leadership has to be more accessible. Um, but, but yeah, so that was kind of my involvement story was I just kept showing up to things. I kept going to conferences, even though I didn't like them, even though they gave me anxiety, even as an extrovert, like conferences can be very overwhelming. Um, and my very first national conference was National Student Conclave in Providence, Rhode Island. And I left within 24 hours after having a major panic attack while I was there. Um, and then I went back the next year to National Student Conclave. I was so nervous, you know, knowing what the previous year had been like. Um, but I went to Albuquerque as a student assembly candidate, won that election. And um, it was just one of the best experiences of my life. So I call it my redemption story. Um, but but yeah, I think truthfully, just saying yes to every opportunity that comes up. And if you aren't finding a lot of opportunities are coming up, if maybe your faculty isn't as involved, um, you know, asking about that and saying, hey, in what capacity can I get involved? Because there's so many um, sections of the APTA where you can do something. You don't have to hold like an official leadership position to be involved. Yeah, I think that's really good input, Yusra. For me, myself, I haven't mentioned this on the podcast before, but I actually uh, was selected as a Texas um, 
Student Physical Therapy Association core ambassador. So that's something I'm really proud of. And that's awesome. Oh, yeah. did you just follow me on Twitter? Yeah, I think I did. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that. I was like, oh, Texas core ambassador. That's cool. Yeah. I didn't even make the connection. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so I'm super excited about that. But whenever I first Very applied cool. and I first started getting started, I was like, oh, what did I sign up for? Like, what am I really doing? And right. like, I was really hesitant about all of it. And I got, I'm actually starting to get started. And now I'm like learning like all the networking opportunities I'm doing and how fun this yeah. can be. So it's actually, yes. you know, a pretty great thing. Once you get into it, just say yes, like you mentioned. Right, right. And I would say too, like most um, opportunities for me, APTA wise, I know this isn't for everyone, but I think for me, it's a lot of it's come from social media. I think it's come from my blog and from Twitter. My current job as a PT is my dream job. And I got it during a pandemic. And I think I got it because of my presence on Twitter. Um, and that's where I've been like recruited for certain APTA efforts and things like that too. So if someone is you know comfortable on social media or would like to become comfortable, I would definitely recommend having some sort of presence on there to be able to network with people. Because again, during virtual times right now, that's another really great avenue. Um, and it can be really great to introduce you to like virtual opportunities too that way you're not having to pay money to go to a conference or or anything like that so yeah but that's awesome core core ambassador is a big deal so that's really cool thanks so much yeah that's awesome so kind of like we mentioned earlier we are big fans of your social media presence and (laughs) your topics on diversity inclusivity body positivity and mental health um so we were curious as to what got you started on social media presence and moreover what um inspired you to speak on those topics specifically yeah that's a good question so for me it all came from whatever I was struggling with at the time so um I it's it's so funny so whenever I have to like write some sort of bio for anyone like for a conference I always say that I'm a writer and yet I would never consider myself one just because for me blogging has been mostly kind of like my online journal um so I in 20 2015 maybe um on whenever my 21st birthday was on my 21st birthday I realized that I had an eating disorder and not the great greatest time to find out that you have a mental illness on your 21st birthday. Um, but, uh, it hit me really hard. So it was during my master's program and my family had just moved away. Um, I was living in North Carolina. They moved to Indiana and, um, that hit me really hard. I isolated myself from my friends. And so that whole period was just really difficult for me to deal with. I did go to counseling, um, and it was, it was helpful. Um, but, at first I started going to counseling in secret because I was scared that, you know, people would judge me and that um, even my parents would be like, no, I don't, we don't want you to do that. Um, just because of like some cultural, you know, differences. And um, for me, when I was, when I finally decided I wanted to apply to PT school, that was kind of when I was also in the depths of my eating disorder um, and my subsequent kind of depression and anxiety and I needed an outlet. And so then I moved to Indiana and I never, I didn't have my counselor anymore. Um, I didn't know, how to kind of burden my friends with some of those things. And also I wasn't sure that they'd be able to relate. Um, And so I started trying to journal. I hated it. My hand would cramp up. I didn't like having to 
address what I was dealing with. I would rather just bottle it up, pretend like it wasn't happening. Um, but I've always loved anything that can allow me to be creative and like create with my hands. And so I figured, well, if I create an online blog, that is something that um, I can mess with the colors and the fonts and, you know, I can make it look the way that I want to. Um, and it gives me something to where I can be productive, but like keep my mind off of kind of the worst time of my life. Um, and so I, I started the blog as kind of like a mental health coping thing. So it actually wasn't called the DPT diaries in the beginning. It was called ease and honor, which are the meanings of my first and last name. So that was a way for me to kind of be like, okay, this is my blog, but I didn't tell any of my friends about it. So I would write online. Um, and sometimes it would be like poem type things and really whatever came to mind for me to deal with the eating disorder. Um, then when I was applying to PT school, because I realized so late that I wanted to go into PT and because I didn't know a whole lot about it outside of my, um, shadowing experiences in outpatient ortho and sports, um, I started looking up what PT school was like, couldn't really find any information. I found a ton of YouTube channels and blogs for like pre-med, pre-PA and pre-nursing, but there wasn't a lot out there for PT. And I only had one friend at the time that had even gone to PT school. Um, and so I figured, well, I might as well just start documenting my own journey. That way, anyone who comes after me wants similar information, it'll be there for them. Um, so then I pivoted from the mental health stuff. I actually deleted a lot of those old blog posts uh, and then changed my name to the DPT Diaries, started talking about PT admissions, um, getting shadowing hours, taking the GRE, like things like that. Then um, body positivity and like body acceptance was always something that has been important to me. Um, ever since I was young, I have been overweight. And so that was like really difficult for me, like getting messaging um, from like even my parents, friends, like trying to slip me diets across the table and suggest that I don't eat or suggest I overexercise. And um, for a long time, I was able to keep those messages away. But when my eating disorder manifested, um, I realized I had internalized a lot of that. And right before my eating disorder, I had lost a lot of weight. And it was after that, that people were like, oh, you look so good now. Or, oh, now that you're thin, you can get married. And like getting all these like weird messages about my body. Um, so I knew that body acceptance and body diversity was going to be something I was going to talk about on the blog in addition to PT stuff. It wasn't until I went to PT school that I realized that racism is very pervasive, especially in higher education and healthcare. And it's not always overt, although sometimes it is. Um, and my, like, my first experiences in PT school around like my race and religion were very positive. Um, someone from uh, leadership at Duke pulled me aside um, first week of orientation and were like, hey, we noticed you wear a headscarf or a hijab. Um, what does that mean for like, uh, palpation lab and practical exams. And they like laid all that out and they were like, here's what these typically look like. In what capacity do you feel like you can participate? Um, and so we talked through all that and that was awesome. And I felt really encouraged by that. Um, they'd had a Muslim student before. And so they had like a curtain up in one of the classrooms so that we could do like massage practical and things like that behind the curtain and I could still participate. Um, and so it wasn't until a little bit later that I started hearing messaging that I was like, well, that seems a little weird. And with PT not being a very diverse like profession or field, I was the only Muslim person in my cohort. So there was never anyone I could go to and be like, hey, did you hear that? Like, did that sound a little bit off to you? And this isn't a Duke thing. And so um, sometimes I get nervous talking about this stuff because I feel like anything around DEI, especially um, 
no comment of mine can like stand alone. Um, all of it needs like caveats and disclaimers and, you know, more context. But, um, I will say that I know that my experience at Duke was not unique. Um, and I think, I don't think this is a Duke problem. I think this is a PT problem and I think this is a healthcare problem. Um, and actually I've been really encouraged to see a lot of the pivots that Duke has taken to address some of these issues and take these things seriously. So that's been nice over the past year or so, but, um, but yeah, so I, I kind of have an inability to filter myself sometimes. And, um, I felt like I needed a community where, um, I was better represented. I still haven't met any Muslims um, who are like, like any Muslim adults, you know, like I've, I've met other like students who are Muslims, um, but no like professors or PTs or anything like that. So it is very interesting to be in a field where um, you feel like you're succeeding and you want to succeed and then also be like, well, but do I belong here? And so I think, again, my blog just became another coping space for me to talk about those things and feel like almost uh, like solicit kind of you know, experiences from other people and be like, am I the only one like, you know, experiencing this stuff? And that's when I realized that it wasn't just me um, and that it was people all around the country in PT and in healthcare. The more people I follow now on social media and other healthcare fields, I'm realizing that um, it's not just us. So I don't want to come off as like ungrateful in any way. Um, But I think that, you know, if you're willing to critique something or willing to provide solutions to something, it's because you care. You know, I love this field. I love this profession. I loved my PT program. And so I want things to be better. Um, it's not because I'm like, want to bash anyone, you know? So like, if anyone's listening and is like offended or like turned off by anything I say, that's not my intent at all. But um, these are just kind of the experiences that, that I've been through. So that's why I started talking about those things. But there's a lot I don't say, you know, a lot for fear of, um, it's certainly not fear of critique. I can take constructive criticism. I can take challenges to my beliefs and things like that, but um, I'm pretty sensitive. So if I feel like someone's tone is like really aggressive or if I feel like someone's mad at me and doesn't really know me, I have a hard time with, with that on social media. So I do take very frequent social media breaks as well. And so I don't talk about a lot of things too. Yeah. Well, we really appreciate you opening up about uh, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, because that's a very hot topic in APTA, and it should be a hot topic everywhere. You know, we should all be acknowledging that and pushing forward for that in our field. uh, I just want to say thanks for opening up about that. Yeah, Yeah. well, thank you. Thank you for asking about it, too, because I think it's one of those things where – I think the fear of talking about it and the fear of saying something wrong or offensive is kind of the first barrier to even like getting to addressing these issues at all. Um, And so I know a lot of times, like in my conversations with uh, people from school and people from APTA, a lot of times it's, well, we don't want to rock the boat. We don't necessarily want to challenge, you know, the way things are working because we feel like they're working pretty well, or we don't want to make people uncomfortable. But what people don't realize is that whenever we prioritize the comfort of the majority, we are then further legitimizing the discomfort of the minority and minorities are uncomfortable all the time and so a lot of times too like I know people get very frustrated hearing that we may have you know systems of systemic oppression or racism or white supremacy in higher higher education healthcare that's not any one person's fault nobody's blaming anybody you know these are systems that were set up hundreds of years ago very intelligently to oppress a certain certain group of people Um, and so once people, I think, can realize that they're not being blamed or attacked, it's just 
this is just kind of the situation we're in and everyone has a responsibility and the ability to have an impact. I think that's a really important mindset to start with. Um, and, and I think that, you know, while minorities and BIPOCs so like black indigenous and people of color are doing amazing work in the field, it can't be done without white allies. Um, and that's why I'm so grateful to like all of my friends who are tirelessly kind of putting themselves at risk and in uncomfortable situations to kind of, be able to have empathy and to fight for marginalized communities as they fight for themselves as well. Totally. Um, and I feel like once you push past that uncomfortability, you build community and you build yes. accountability. And the more you get that going, the um, better things eventually get. So, yeah. Absolutely. Because I feel like we talk all the time. I mean, if we talk like PT and exercise, like we're constantly telling our patients that they have to be uncomfortable to grow. Right. And we're constantly having, we're constantly being tested and practical exams and all this stuff. And we're told to fail over and over again and to make as many mistakes as possible where it's safe to make mistakes so that then we get out into the real world and we can be better. Um, it wouldn't make any sense for me to go to PT school and them give me straight A's right off the bat. And like, just cause they don't want to hurt my feelings or make it me uncomfortable. So we have, you have to be uncomfortable to grow. And you're absolutely right. That like, that's where community comes from as well is you go through that struggle together. And so once you can do that, then you get down to, okay, how do we actually solve this problem? Because I think the issue has been a lot of people want like band-aid solutions. And I don't think that's their intent. I don't think they see it that way, but I think they see it kind of like we might solve a leaky pipe in the PT program, right? Like, okay, what are the steps we need to take to, to fix this? And racism and systemic oppression, especially, like I said, hundreds of years of, of legacy behind that, it doesn't work that way. And people don't work that way. Um, and it has to be, you have to kind of be in it for the long haul and you have to really be truly committed to equity amongst everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, ask a, sorry, Joey, can you go ahead there? Uh, yeah, I was just going to fire off a one question that kind of tied in with what we've been talking about. Um, yeah. kind of more so in a specific sense for like PTs or healthcare, prof healthcare professionals. Um, how important do you think it is for them to have a voice in causes like this or really any cause that they're passionate about? Oh my gosh. So important. I feel like, um, we talked about this last night um, for APTA, the interview that I did about side hustles was uh, a question that came in a lot was like, well, how do you give time to your side hustle? And should you give time? Should you worry about your grades? But if you think about it, a lot of people get into PT and PTA school because they were doing other things outside of just studying, right? And so then it's the same principles in PT and PTA school where you, you should absolutely follow your passions. And if your passions are studying and you love that and you want to like, I don't know, get the best grades and like that's where you find your happiness, then fine. Like, that's great. But I think it's so important to speak up on causes that are important to you because I think that um, even if you think about the people that we hold in really high regard, whether it's in PT or not, like you think about historical figures, you think about people who've truly had an impact and made a difference. They weren't the people that stayed quiet, right, about the things that they were passionate about um, or the things that really impacted them or communities that they loved. And so I think it's so important. I don't think everyone has to be the same amount of committed to the same causes, um, of course. But yeah, I mean, I think that for me, it's been me following what my passions are and speaking up on those things and being involved that's allowed me to be a better therapist. So even things like blogging, I think that 
constantly having to communicate with an audience of essentially strangers for the most part, um, how I'm feeling and uh, what I think on a certain topic and why I think that way and having to justify that makes me a better therapist to my patients where I have to do the same thing, um, especially if they're a stranger to exercise. Um, and so it's, it's made me a better online communicator. Um, it's helped me to deal with conflict a lot better and to understand people better. So um, I think that no matter what you put your time into, as long as it's something that's like good and doing good and you're authentic about it and it's a genuine passion of yours, it's only going to help you even if you don't realize right off the bat how it might. Um, and like I said, even like spending time on social media, like my tweets about DEI stuff, mostly unnecessary, right? I think some of them have had an impact, but like, I didn't have to say all the stuff that I did, but I do think that me speaking up is what got me noticed by my current employer and then helped me to get a job. So you just never know. Um, and I think that there's just so much more to life to life than grades. And it's very easy for me to say that now that I've graduated. And I was very obsessed with getting straight A's when I was at Duke. So I wish I could like go back and slap, you know, first year Easter and be like, please snap out of it. Um, so yeah, so I think it's, it's incredibly important. And also I will say too, if you think about speaking up on issues in the realm of things like policy and politics and governance, those are normal people too, who went, a lot of them like are not career politicians. Like there are teachers that become politicians and drive policy and change the way that the world works. You know, there's healthcare providers that go into those positions. So even if you don't want to go into politics, whatever it is that you do want to do, like PT doesn't have to be your entire identity is what um, Deja said on last night's interview. It doesn't have to be the only thing you do and you're allowed to exist outside that realm as well. And it will only help you within that profession too. It's really awesome. Powerful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> another question I have for you, um, you know, of course, like advancing on systemic racism, it can't just be, we can't just put a bandaid on it, but right. uh, how would you like to see up, uh, underrepresented groups be more included in healthcare and how can we as students play a role in supporting those groups? That is the million dollar question. Um, I think, I think it's a great question. I will give my opinions. I'm no expert on this stuff. Um, I think everyone should take anything I say with a grain of salt. Uh, but I think that one there has to be an acceptance that there are inequities um, and that there is something to be remedied and worked on because I think that a denial of those things is going to get you nowhere. So I think that the first step has to be understanding not, like it doesn't have to be in detail. So I always tell people that in terms of even as a Brown person, even as a visible Muslim who wears a headscarf, I had no concept of social justice issues when I was in college. Could not care less about politics. Like, didn't want to hear any of it. I was in my own little bubble of privilege. I was happy. I was at my dream school. I was fine. And it wasn't until PT school, honestly, that I really started to get invested and involved. And it's really selfish because it came from me having poor experiences in those realms. Um, but at least... You know, I think it's a blessing because then it, it did open my eyes to a lot of the inequities that a lot of people deal with. Um, so I think that 
while no one has to be an expert on these things to get involved and to help, I think it can really help to kind of educate yourself in whatever way you learn best. There were a lot of book lists that went around this summer, um, books like How to Be an Anti-Racist, books like White Fragility. Um, if you can go into those things with an open mind, they're really great. TED Talks, there are so many of those out there, typically easier to consume for a lot of people than a book. Um, I know students are very busy. Um, and there's a ton of articles and blog posts. And I think that if people can go into things with an open mind and consume that information and believe it, I think that's really important. Um, then I think from there you think about, okay, well, where can I, where can I serve as an ally? Where can I, uh, impact things with, with the energy level that I have, with the resources that I have? Um, cause you also don't want to burn yourself out in this work either. And there are people who have dedicated their lives to DEI work. So it's a lot, um, and, and it can be very heavy, but, um, one of the things that I think is really important is to address what's called like the pipeline to PT school. So this idea that um, as you get higher and higher up in higher education, you lose diversity. So um, like I went to uh, a really big high school um, in Southern North Carolina and it was very diverse. And then I went to college and it was still pretty diverse. Then I went to my master's program and it was a bit less diverse. And then I went to my doctorate program and there were maybe eight minorities in a class of 80. Um, and so a lot of that can be addressed by introducing younger kids to physical therapy early on. Um, so like I said, I had no idea what PT was until college. And so I had the privilege of going to college. Um, and so if someone doesn't even get to that point and they're not in my shoes, then like they don't even know the field exists. Cause if you don't have the resources to go to PT as a patient, when you're younger, you know, unless you have a family member that's in the field, you may never hear about it. So Students can help by volunteering at local um, middle schools, elementary schools, and high schools. Um, you can go in as a mentor. So like when I was at Duke, we had um, a mentorship program at a local high school and it wasn't just PT focused. So we were just kind of like career and like school mentors to the high schoolers. Um, but they also knew we were from a PT program so we could talk to them about PT if they were interested. Um, I think that uh, if there were something to help like even younger kids um, understand what PT is and get them interested early on. I think that would be great. Um, I would love for someone to write a children's book about physical therapy. Um, I think that could be really cool because what people need to see is people who look like them. Um, and so there's a lot of really well-intentioned like minority scholarships for PT students and PTA students. But it's like by that point, I don't think people should take away those scholarships. I think they're very helpful. But by the time you get to that point, it's almost too late to recruit someone who is a minority. And so me not seeing a hijab wearing Muslim in the field, thank God I didn't really give that any thought <laughs> before I applied to PT school. Cause if I had, I might not be here. Um, Cause I might think I might as well go into medicine where there are a lot more people who look like me and you know, Clearly, that's the field I'm supposed to be in. Um, so even now, as a licensed PT, I always think, should I be here? Um, you know, do I belong here? And it's a very frustrating feeling to 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 deal with internally because you know you do and you know you want to help people and that's your whole goal. Um, so that's one place to start. Sorry, I'm a big talker. I'm very long-winded. I apologize. Um, I think oh, we love it. <laughs> um, I think too, getting involved. So APTA has some DEI initiatives. Um, a lot of them are newer, um, so it's hard to say exactly like what they're looking into. But I do know that DEI has a div or 
DEI. APTA has a DEI division that is looking into like that pipeline stuff and like helping with high school. So I think that's like a really big one because if people who are minorities or like part of marginalized groups are not even being exposed to the field, like you're never going to get the diversity that you need. Um, so there's that. If you have money um, supporting those scholarships, I think is a great one. Like APTA even did, like if you donate $10 to the DEI fund, you get your name on the wall in the new building. So I thought that was cool because it gives some sort of incentive, um, makes you really feel like you are like contributing and that you belong. Um, I think that I, okay, so like I said, racism can be overt, like in your face, like clearly racism, or they can be in the form of like microaggressions, which are kind of everyday little things that happen that a lot of times they seem like compliments. So a, a bunch of my patients will say, wow, you don't even have an accent. Or they'll say, when did you learn to speak English? I moved to the United States. I did. I did. I was born outside of the United States. So it's really hard for me whenever people are like, you should go back to your country. And I want to be like, this is my country. And I'm like, oh, technically I wasn't born here. You're right. But I moved to the United States and I was less than a year old. So American is my culture. Um, I am very proud of my Pakistani culture. Love it. But like, if you talk to me, I'm a lot more American than some of the Americans that I treat. <laughs> and so um, I feel like anyone else could hear that and be like, yeah, they said you don't have an accent. That's a compliment. But then what does that mean for people who have accents, right? And why all of a sudden assume that I'm going to have an accent and not be a U.S. citizen just because of the way that I look? And so there's little things like that that happen all the time that I think people really have an opportunity to stand up and be an ally in those situations and to uplift people's voices. Racism happens little by little every day, and it builds up, and it's it's very, um, you feel like you're drowning as a minority when you don't have other people who can relate and and white allies, especially in leadership, who will then help you to uh, have those things go away. And I think allyship works in the same way where it can be little by little every day. You could read an article one week and then the next week, like it could be about how to speak up in the workplace um, for your minority colleague when someone says something racist. And then the next week you, you try something out and maybe it doesn't work and then you're in an uncomfortable position and they call you out for being racist, you know, like it's not linear. It's not easy. Um, but I truly think that like, because of the pervasive nature of oppression and racism, because it's, it's so omnipresent, I think allyship can work the same way where it doesn't have to be like a grand gesture. You don't have to come up with a whole new scholarship. Um, you don't have to like I don't know, go out and like volunteer in a community that maybe you're not part of and you don't know how things work for them, but you can hear something that sounds a little off to your classmate and you can be the one to speak up and say, what did you mean by that? Just to get a conversation going around why it may not be appropriate. But then even understanding if something is a microaggression or not, that comes from conversations with people, that comes from building relationships, and it comes from educating yourself online. So the one other thing, too, I would say is that a lot of times people will say, well, you're a minority, what's the answer? It is not the job of the person who is oppressed to give you a solution to the oppression, especially to the person who's doing the oppressing, right? So... Um, I think that if you have friends where you have that relationship already, um, then if they are comfortable with it, if they're okay with talking about things, then open up that conversation and say, hey, how can I be a better ally to you? Because just having friends who are minorities does not make you a good ally. And I've learned that for myself. I've learned that with like 
friends of mine who are in the LGBTQ community, understanding that just because they're my friends doesn't mean I've been a good ally for them. Um, and so I'm also constantly learning. And so um, just making sure you're not tokenizing the minorities in your life and only like their only value is not to help you with DEI initiatives either. Like everyone needs to take initiative and educate themselves and um, do the best that they can. And DEI work is messy. You might speak up for someone and stick up for them and think you're being a great ally. And they're like, no, I can speak for myself. You know, like things like that happen too. Like there's conflict in this there. It's, it's hard. Um, but I think that as long as you're going into it with pure intention, like people can see that. And so while if someone might say something racist and try to bully me, like I, that might not be the first person I go to with solutions, my best friends who are all, um, you know, not minorities and from PT school, they were my friends first. And then like, I'm the most comfortable talking to them about it, even more so sometimes than my minority friends, because I know that like we can work together to actually do something because they want to learn. Um, yeah, that's really yeah. So long answer, but well, that was really getting ideas. And uh, I feel like some of the key points that you said, um, I actually heard someone say one time, "If you can see it, you can be it." His name mm-hmm. was Eddie. He was a monk, and so mm-hmm. if you're younger and you see like someone who's like a black physical therapist or mm-hmm. a Muslim physical therapist, you're much more likely to be like, hey, maybe I can be in that profession right. and do those things. And there's lots of right. social psychology research behind that too, about how kids who see people of their own color are much more likely to you know, go down that path and things like that. And yeah. uh, I think you hit a lot of great key points on uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and just how we can, if we ever, you know, we make friends first and we can come in, within that, conversation with compassion and with Mm -hmm. the heart ready to learn and of course it's not their responsibility to you know be the person who fixes all the problems either too so it's a team effort yeah Yeah, I think on one of y'all's first episodes you said something like being a great therapist means like being a great person first you know and so I think that is the mentality behind PT and I think that's the mentality behind like allyship and racism too because in both realms, you're working with people and people are at the kind of heart of all of it. And I think that as long as, like you said, you go into it with compassion and just a desire to just help people and help make everything better for the people that you love, then um, I think that's always a great place to start. Yeah, that's awesome. And I want to ask you a little bit more about some of the other things you're passionate about, like um, sure. body positivity. Do you think body positivity can play a factor in your practice and how you educate patients? Oh my God. Yes. Yes. Um, so like I said, I've been through some significant body changes and I know that for me as a patient of PT, it made a world of difference. If I felt comfortable, um, being in whatever gym space in the way that my PT prefaced, like what she was going to do before she touched me, even as a PT, I don't like being touched. Like it just gives me, I have like a visceral reaction when people come and like hug me or touch me. Like I would rather initiate it. And so, um, for me that comes from like insecurity in my body and, um, that being a very constant anxiety for me. So even like when I'm on a zoom call, like I try really hard not to look at myself and I try really hard to look at everybody else. Um, because I know that it's going to impact the way that like the conversation goes for me. Um, so yes, because I think like when, when a lot of people think PT and clearly like when I thought PT, when I first was getting into it, I was like, oh, athletes. And then even within athletes though, there's so much body diversity depending on just the person, depending on genetics, depending on sport. And then you go outside of that and you think acute care and a lot of patients there, um, 
might have a different body composition just by nature of being in the hospital. Um, and so I think that one, we need to change or improve the language around, um, I don't even know what the word is, but like just the way we talk about bodies and especially like nutrition and exercise, like our mindset around that um, sometimes comes out in our words and our education. And I think it's super important to make sure that people feel empowered to do whatever they want to do, because if they feel shamed by, especially by a healthcare professional where they're being burned all the time by like um, by other healthcare professionals, then like, they're not going to trust you. And like, I'm saying that as a, a plus size, like current patient of a physical therapist. Um, and for me, like, I want to get back into sports and I've had people tell me, Oh, you don't look like an athlete or you don't look like a dancer. And like, what is that supposed to do for my confidence? Right. So then why would I want to do my exercises to then get back to dancing? If someone just told me I don't even look like I can dance. Um, and so I think it's incredibly important um, both like in school, the way that you talk to your classmates um, and the way that people talk to their students. And then when you get out into the field and you're treating patients, because um, as much as you might have an idea in your head about like what fitness looks like or what health looks like, your patients are going to be so diverse in the way that they look, even if you are working in a very niche you know, field. Um, they everybody is different and there is no one size is best. Um, you can be healthy and fit in a larger body. You can be very unhealthy and unfit in a smaller body. Um, and so I remember the best advice that I ever got was from a healthcare professional who finally believed me when I told them I had an eating disorder. And I think what's really interesting is that I've never formally been diagnosed because people didn't believe me because I was in a larger body at that point. And I've had counselors say, you don't look like you have an eating disorder. And while that may not be our scope, if you say that to someone in a PT clinic, like there goes your rapport, right? Or we are constantly preaching, oh, exercise is so great and movement and everyone needs movement. And while I do think some form of movement can be good for everybody, if you're telling someone who already struggles with over-exercising that they need to exercise more, which has happened to me, that's not healthy. And so the best advice I ever got was from a dietitian at NC State who said, you have to stop exercising the way that you're doing right now. Um, and she actually banned me from exercise for just a week. And it was horrible. I, it was horrible for my mental health, but it really opened my eyes to, okay, there's different ways to go about fitness and movement and health and wellness for every person. Um, and, you know, my body is and the way it looks is not worth destroying my whole life over. Um, so yes, I think it's incredibly important. Um, and I think that it's really important to be open to the idea that there's, um, one different, there's just, there's just diversity in bodies that you're going to see when you get out into the field. And also, um, that, there needs to be kind of a movement away from like judgment of certain bodies. Just because you see someone in a larger body doesn't mean that their knee pain is caused by their, their weight. And just because someone's in a younger body doesn't mean that you all of a sudden load them up because they must be fit. Um, and then they end up getting injured. You know, those are just two small examples amongst many, but yeah, I'm very passionate about this. I get very frustrated <laughs> when people say things that are like, you know, like kind of judgy or um, just put people in a box, especially around nutrition. Like I remember one time, um, one of my favorite classmates after a nutrition lecture made fun of me for drinking a Coke. And I was very insecure about eating in front of people anyway. And I just remember like it was not his intent at all to to hurt me. Right. He was just making a joke based on the lecture we just had. Um, and yet that like derailed things for me. And I had a really hard time in things like palpation lab and other places 
places where I had to be touched and um, feel very like exposed with my body. Yeah. And uh, I think uh, you made a really good point how words matter a lot. And that's something I've started to learn, like as I've been listening to podcasts and learning from physical therapists who've mm-hmm. been experienced for a while, like words matter so much. And I think we need right. to re- kind of reframe the narratives that we talk about with patients about um, exercise and like exercise isn't meant to like punish ourselves for like right. It's, it's there to appreciate our body and, um, yeah. you know, show our body that we value it. And I think it's, there's a lot of other ways you can go with the positives of exercise. Yeah. And yeah. there, like, this is definitely addressed in PT school, right? Like I remember in school, we were taught never to say like your bad leg or your bad side. You would always say like affected or impacted, um, or you would just focus on the strong side and, you know, frame things around that. And so when I talk to my patients being a newer clinician, I know they can see me stuttering a lot. And I take really long pauses because I can feel myself about to say something, um, that could potentially be harmful because you never know what's going to be triggering for a person. And then I have to like stop and think what's the best way to frame this and I still I'm sure have made mistakes that patients don't tell you sometimes um but but yes you're right yeah words matter so much yeah definitely Mm -hmm. so in PT you know it it can be easy to be overwhelmed or burnt out or just down you know sometimes or PTs have like you know 20 patients they got to see in the morning or day or Mm -hmm. so what are some ways that you counter some of that those feelings of being you know, burnt out or something like that? Yeah, I um, feel really lucky that I don't think I've ever truly been burnt out in PT, uh, which is really nice. And I think it's because I, like what we were talking about earlier about like following your passions and like kind of structuring your life around those, I think can be really great. Um, So I think it's really important to just figure out like, what is it for you that's going to prevent that feeling of burnout? So is it spending time with your family? Is it getting a pet? Is it um, talking to your significant other more, maybe less <laughs> during the week? Um, you know, is it is it exercise? Um, for me, I was involved in a lot of leadership things. I led a lot of clubs. And so people would be like, you know, you're kind of doing a lot of school stuff. Like, what else is it that you like to do for fun? And I was like, well, like these clubs that I'm leading are ones that I would want to lead in my free time anyway. Like this is already work I'd want to be doing in my free time because the clubs I led were like mental wellness, humanities, education, and uh, diversity. So uh, it wasn't like I was leading like the neurosig because that just wasn't a passion of mine. Um, And that would have felt like work to me, but all of this stuff, it felt like I was making a difference and like I was having a positive impact and that was what brought me happiness. So um, I think that's one, I think, it's really hard as a student, um, as an early professional, but I think learning to advocate for yourself and speak up when things are not fair or balanced. I especially felt this in my clinical rotations. Um, some of my clinical instructors were really good about being like, there's no, there's no patience left for the day. Like, and you sitting around here for two hours watching me document is not going to help you become a better clinician. Like go exercise, go enjoy the sunshine. So I really appreciated people like that who, um, the best mentors are the ones who are really in tune to like your wellness and your mental wellness and your balance. I also had experiences where I was working a lot and I didn't have time for myself and I wasn't asked, you know, how are you doing? Um, and, and that 
was really tough for me. And that's, I think, the closest I've ever gotten to burnout is just feeling like I didn't have support and feeling like I didn't have a community to go to, um, especially because all of my long-term clinical rotations were out of state um, and I didn't know anyone in in the places that I went. So um, I think the the more you can anticipate not having good days, the better you can plan for them and then the less bad days you'll have. Um, because bad days, like they happen and like, you will start to feel tired and you will take classes that you hate and you will take classes where you just do not understand why, like it's even taught in PT school and like, you'll be treating patients for things, um, that are not your passion. But like, if you can remember your why too, of like why you got into this profession, that'll help a lot. So like, I remember I hated finals weeks, um, And I had a sign above my desk that said, your patients need you. And that was always the only motivation that I needed to get back to studying. If I ever felt distracted or frustrated was, this isn't about me. It's not about my program. It's not about my grades. It's about the patient in a year from now that is going to be dealing with this exact condition. And I need to be ready to help them and to educate them. So knowing your why, planning for any bad days, and just planning in like, positive things around times where you know you're going to be stressed. So like I have times where I had a phone call last week that I was uh, kind of dreading. And so I went ahead and scheduled a FaceTime with one of my good friends from PT school right after that, because I knew I'd be stressed and I'd need to talk about it. And then I scheduled a movie night with a friend that night, because then it gave me something to look forward to. And I could kind of deal with whatever I needed to. I didn't avoid it, but then I could look beyond that as well and know that there was like hope of something more positive coming after that. For sure. I like how you mentioned a lot about heading it off. Cause I think a lot of people don't know they're burnt out till it's too late mm. or don't know they're approaching burnout till it's too late. So yeah, things like that, like planning things ahead of time or just knowing when that could possibly happen. Like having I won't say an emergency plan, but just having a plan yeah. um, to combat that is. I had a self care box, like a literal box, <laughs> like a cool. candle and like my favorite snacks. And like, um, what is it called? I think, I think I just called it a self care box, but yeah, you can literally look that up online and people have examples of like a blanket or a picture of their family or like things like that. So it's not a bad idea. If you're someone who you feel like, you know, could benefit from something like that. Um, I think too, like one more thing to keep in mind is it is always okay to change your mind. If you realize that like, you don't actually want what you thought you wanted. So that can be on a larger scale. Like you realize you don't actually want to be a PT or PTA anymore, or it can be, oh, I don't want to do neuro anymore. I'd rather do pediatrics and do like sports or something like that. Like I think sometimes people feel trapped and stuck and no one is necessarily, well, this may not always be the case, but a lot of times people are not forcing you to to do what you're doing and to be where you're at. So I think that like, while you can be grateful for the situation you're in and the things you've been given, you are allowed to change your mind and and pivot to something that you think you might want more. Like that's okay too. And I think I learned that lesson too late as well. And I know it's something that some of my friends needed to hear uh, early on in PT school too. So I've had friends like in from PT school now go on to do their PhDs and now they're going to go into research. And I've had people leave the field early on, like before they even started practicing as a PT and like, that's okay. Like, like I do not judge them for that. They realized they wanted something else and they went for it. And I have a lot of respect for people who can identify what they want and and really go for it as well. Wow. So uh, this last question here, I, this will probably tie in a lot of what we talked about. Um, Okay. What is your definition of a great physical therapist? Ooh, 
That's a good one. I know you sent me these questions ahead of time, so I should have an answer. Um, I think that... I don't want to steal the like <laughs> just being a good person thing. Um, I think that it's someone who can can understand that they don't understand everything, um, and that it's this profession is its people. Um, and I think sometimes, like I hesitate to say this, but I think it's so little about the actual exercises you're giving people and like what you're actually doing in clinic. Like, yeah, all that stuff matters, but you could give somebody the perfect exercise plan, but if you don't have rapport and if you don't have trust and if, um, you know, you are not attentive to like their other needs, especially like psychology, um, and even like access to PC, PT sociology, there is so much to it. But if you're not attentive to that stuff, then like that perfect exercise program is void that person may not do it. It still may not get them better. Um, and so I think it's recognizing that there's uh, so many layers to people and just going into your job with the intention to just do the best you can with what you know at the time um, and recognize that you just want to treat people well. Um, and that for me, I think has been really eye-opening as well. In my clinical rotations, I remember there were some patients of mine who were not getting better and I had been seeing them for a couple of months and it was time for me to leave and go on to another rotation. I didn't really know what was going on with them. They were chronic issues. Um, it was just over my head. And those were the patients that cried when I told them I was leaving because of the relationship that we had. And then there were a couple of patients who got a hundred percent better and they barely gave me a handshake on the way out the door. <laughs> and I think it's, we just didn't have the same relationship. Um, and so yes, people want to feel better and you're in this field to like help people feel better physically, but it's, it's so much more about the relationships that you build um, and just how you make a person feel about themselves. So maybe that's what makes a good physical therapist is someone who can make their patients and their colleagues just feel really empowered and positive about themselves. Um, Cause I think there's a lot of power in that. Beautiful answer. <laughs> Thanks. Wow. Sorry. I'm also still trying to digest a lot of everything. I'm just like, wow, my eyes are open. <laughs> Oh, I love that. <laughs> for sure. Um, so thank you again for coming on. This was a pleasure. Um, I really can't wait for everyone to listen to this and gain something from this. Um, so what would be a good way for people to find you on social media and for our listeners to engage with you and learn more from you? Yeah, so um, I'm probably most present on Instagram at the DPT Diaries. Um, and you can also contact me through my blog, the dptdiaries.com. Um, on there is a contact form where you can get in touch with me and ask any and all questions. I also do a lot of essay editing. Um, I have about 10 years of like unofficial experience uh, doing essay editing. So I mostly help people with like uh, admissions applications, but, um, I've also helped like some of my best friends are lawyers. I helped them when they were in law school, um, and have helped like people in medical residency, PT residency, um, whenever they were like applying to various things or like working on grants and stuff. So I love helping people with like the, the logistics of writing. So like spelling, grammar, et cetera, but I love helping people preserve their voice as well. Um, and really get their message and themselves across on paper. So, um, if you're interested in that, uh, my services are on my blog as well. That's great. And also, uh, check out 
Yusra's uh, APTA podcast. She was a host. <laughs> she has awesome questions and she interviews a lot of great people too. Well, thank you so much. Thank you guys for having me. Seriously, this was such a huge honor. I really, really just, this is just highlight of my month. Oh, this is awesome. <laughs> I'm serious. Uh, well. <laughs> yeah, pleasure was ours. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for listening to The Greatest Physical Therapist, Their Past, Our Future podcast. That was an awesome episode, and it would mean a lot to us if you guys would share this episode with one friend or follow us on Instagram and even subscribe to the podcast or leave us a review. Those things are things that really motivate us to continue and to help spread the podcast to more ears. We hope you guys have an amazing day and an amazing week. Till next time, stay frosty.